Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Welcome to the Mother of All Talk Shows, now on midweek as well as on Sunday. Thanks to our good friend Ravi, our chief sponsor this evening and one of two sponsors from next week. Without Ravi, we wouldn't be here on a Wednesday night and you no longer have to donate after this week because we're only sponsored for the first hour this week we need your donations on the super chat and on the website but next week we'll be fully sponsored and no longer require your exceedingly generous help what a night i thought that the main subject tonight would be the war in ukraine which is intensifying and perhaps about to move into a decisive phase. But the collapse of the British government, which is up to its neck in the Ukraine war, in fact, much beyond its neck, right over its mouth and nose and drowning its own people because of its involvement in the Ukraine war is now itself expiring in real time. I thought that it might be possible that the government would fall by the time that we came off air this evening. I'm waiting for a word in my ear that the government has fallen at the beginning of the mother of all talk shows. Let's try and recap. Liz Truss sacked her Chancellor of the Exchequer for overseas viewers. That's the second most important position in the government, the next door neighbor of the British Prime Minister who lives at number 10, the Chancellor at number 11, interconnecting doorways in each other's ear uh, all the time. And the reason, proximate reason for the downfall of Quasi Quarteng, no need to remember how to pronounce his name, you'll never hear anything about him again. He only lasted 38 days in office. And the proximate reason was that he had introduced a mini budget, which the Prime Minister, Liz Truss, at the time of my speaking to you, uh, didn't like the policies that he outlined in that mini budget, which was unusual because he must have told her what was going to be in the mini-budget. Even more unusual because what was in the mini-budget was precisely what Liz Truss had campaigned to become Prime Minister on. Now, Quasi Quarteng is out. A zombie uh, called Jeremy Hunt, I have to say that very carefully, 
has been retreaded for a third time and is now the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Problem is, his political views on everything are diametrically opposed to his boss next door. It's going to make for interesting interconnected door conversations. As long as Liz Truss remains at number 10, which must now be a matter of hours, perhaps days, but definitely not weeks. That was the big story midweek. Then, this afternoon, in advance of a confidence motion, that is to say if the government had lost it, they would have gone to the country in a general election, which of course concentrates the minds of Conservative MPs considerably, as hundreds of them are currently scheduled to lose those seats in a general election. It was the ultimate gun at the head of Conservative MPs not to ban fracking, which uh, the Conservatives, having promised in the general election, they would ban, now want to resurrect, even though it will bring fire through a kitchen tap or a bathroom shower somewhere near you, at least on the basis of current science. Uh, so the Tories' U-turn on fracking was highly problematic for some Conservative MPs because they ran for office in their constituencies where fracking was a clear and present danger and promised their electors that there would never be any fracking on their doorstep. And how were they going to get re-elected if the U turned on that and the flames started coming out of people's water faucets, as you call them, in the United States. Controversial, yes, but nobody expected what happened next. The Home Secretary, that's the Interior Secretary, the person in charge of everything that happens inside the borders of the British state, and perhaps, though not certainly, just outside in the English Channel, where the Home Secretary was under great pressure to stop the boats bringing hundreds of people, sometimes thousands of people, every day across the English Channel from war-torn France, where they were in fear of persecution and perhaps death not. They were climbing into dinghies under the gaze of the French security forces and sailing across the Channel, and when they land courtesy of all British institutions, from the Royal Navy to the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, they're whisked away, not to jail, not to a camp, but to a four-star hotel, increasingly near you, and put up at £80 per night per person for an indeterminate period, almost certain to last for years. The Home Secretary wanted to stop that. Her name is Suella Braverman, KC as they call them now, King's Council, formerly Queen's Council, a young woman who, as the name suggests, is rather bold and even frisky. She wanted to do something about immigration in Britain. But Liz Truss, who ran on that very platform, is a very different Liz Truss now. Effectively, Britain has a Conservative government now for which it hasn't voted. It voted for Boris Johnson and his 
amanuensis, about whom more later, whose departure led to the beginning of the end for Boris Johnson, and now has a conservative government that looks almost the diametric opposite, politically speaking. It's liberal, it's remainer, it's woke, it's soft, it wants more immigrants, not fewer, and it wants better relations with the European Union, not poorer. And it is absolutely in lockstep with both the United States and the European Union on all matters of foreign policy. So back to the lobbies in the House of Commons this evening. Well, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the member for the 19th century, was mobbed and scragged, as they say, in Britain's private schools by the hoi polloi from the Red Wall, which returned Conservative MPs during the 19, uh, 2019 general election under the leadership of Boris Johnson for the first time, sometimes for a hundred years, sometimes for longer. The Red Wall MPs are utterly furious with Jacob Rees-Mogg and the state of things inside the Conservative Party. So poor Jacob got scragged, he got mobbed, they were cursing and swearing. I don't want to use the words, but uh, think of F, think of off, think of every word you can say to a toff like him that would wound and hurt him. That's exactly what they were doing. And it all ended up with a very comfortable Conservative government win, 96 votes of a majority even better than their notional parliamentary majority. So you wonder what all the fuss was about, especially as it's now cost the jobs of both the chief whip and the deputy chief whip. And as I gave you in the breaking news right at the beginning, a man called Grant Shapps is now the Home Secretary. I have to check because he's had three names in the time he's been in Parliament. Yes, he's a man with multiple identities, and he's now in charge of Britain's police force. He's a man that had to change his name, so dodgy were his business activities. He's a man that falsely represented himself as called one thing when he was actually called something else, who ran a kind of Ponzi scheme that promised you that you would get rich if only you followed his advice. But because that's not how it worked out, he had to change his name. And he's now the British Home Secretary. At least he was at the time I started to speak. My phone is on. I'm ready, Liz. If you'll give me the foreign secretaryship with plenty potentiary powers to end the war, to recognize Palestine, to sail an independent course for the British state, to make up with China and Russia and Iran and Venezuela and all the other countries that you have gratuitously offended over the last 12 years now of conservative government, I'm prepared to take the job. Gonzalo Lira is one of our most widely watched guests. And last week, the mother of all talk shows was watched by 1.1 million people. I suspect we might even break that this week. No 
least thanks to Gonzalo Lira, who joins me now. Gonzalo, welcome back to the mother of all talk shows. Very glad that you are safe and well, because it's all kicking off near where you are, isn't it? Yeah, the war is turning in a very, very interesting direction. And I think that we've reached a turning point and that it won't continue much longer. Um, because it, the, the situation on the ground, insofar as what the Western media is saying, is that, uh, you know, the Zelensky regime's forces are on the doors of Moscow, but that's nonsense. Over the past six weeks, they've launched a series of offensives along the uh, three fronts, uh, Kherson, Zaporozhye, and Kharkov. And uh, these offensives have been incredibly costly. They have lost so many lives. And uh, the only quote-unquote victory that the Zelensky regime claimed and made a lot, out of, a lot of hay out of was the um, offensive in Kharkov, in the Kharkov region. But when you actually look at what happened, the Zelensky regime forces essentially took open cow country. And there's nothing there, but they lost an enormous number of soldiers. It's credibly estimated that in the past six weeks, they have lost at least 18,000 men killed, and perhaps twice that number seriously wounded, incapacitated. And now they have assembled in, in two focal points. Uh, the focal point number one is the Battle of Bakhmut, which is a town, it's in, um, in the um, Lugansk region, and it's a, it's a key point of intersection of several rail lines and highways. Whoever grabs that city, which is in dispute right now, there's a fierce battle going on. It's been going on for a number of weeks. Well, once the um, Russian forces capture that town, they are going to be able to what's known as flower out because there are several roads that exit from Bakhmut. And so that seems that they're going to, the Russian forces are going to be taking that town in the next week, two weeks, three weeks at most, but they will take it. Uh, the Wagner forces, which are the private military contractors that the Russian use, they're basically shock troops. They are on the outskirts of the city. Um, rumors say that they are actually in control of the southern half of the city, but there's fierce combat going on right now, so nobody's very clear about it. But it's indisputable that uh, that city will be captured. And the issue is, of course, that there are 30,000 Zelensky regime forces there. And on the other hand, there is a very large um, grouping of uh, Zelensky regime forces that are amassing around the city of Kherson, or just across from the city of Kherson. And they are about to launch, and in fact, as I'm speaking to you now, they are launching, as a matter of fact, a major offensive towards the city of Kherson. Now, the city of Kherson, if you recall, it was captured initially at the beginning of the war by the Russians. It was a very important um, operational objective because they wanted to break the dam that was preventing Crimea from getting water. And so they captured it initially, and they've held on to it this whole time uh, very easily. And it was the first city where they implemented the use of the ruble. It was the first city where they started giving out uh, Russian passports to the citizenry there. And now the Zelensky regime has amassed an estimated army of between 30,000 and 60,000 men Though uh, the 60,000 seems a little bit over the top, it's more credible to say it's probably between the 30 and 40,000 man range. And they are going to launch a major offensive. They are, as I said, launching it as I speak. And this offensive, um, well, the issue is that, see, the best frontline troops that the Kiev regime had, they're gone. 
that army that they started the war with of 240,000 men, those combat troops have been destroyed. The men that the Kiev regime is throwing into the mix now that are going to be attacking from Kherson are what is known as territorial defense forces. These are second and, and third tier forces. They are under equipped, under trained. And basically, it's going to be a human wave type of, of attack, which will be horrifying. It will be incredibly bloody, especially because the Kherson area where they are going to be attacking has been um, uh, fortified over the last seven, eight months now by the Russians. So they're basically going to be throwing these waves of people against a solid wall. And it's going to be horrifying. And the thing is, see, a lot of people in uh, the West, especially NATO, they insist that this um, offensive has to take place. It is very clear that Washington wants this offensive to take place before the midterm elections, which are on, I believe, the 7th of November. And so they are insisting that the Kiev regime throw these men into this battle for the city of Kherson, uh, which is actually quite far away from the actual front lines. And these men are going to be slaughtered. And it's as simple as that. It's a, it's a tragedy, and it's being done for optics and the politics in the United States. And what has to be understood is that, you see, even if uh, these, uh, this, these waves of soldiers manage to advance somehow, and perhaps even take the city of uh, Kherson, the Russians have already shown their absolute willingness to give up territory and evacuate their troops as well as civilians to save, um, save their men and save their equipment. And as they retreat, they inflict punishing losses on the attacking forces. Because of course, when you are attacking, especially in the kind of terrain we're talking about here, which is steppe, it's just flat prairie land. Well, when you attack, you expose yourself. And so these men who are gonna be attacking towards the direction of Kherson, they're gonna be exposed, just as what happened in Kharkov. In, in the town of Izium and the town of Liman, uh, which is in the Kharkov region, the Zelensky regime forces attacked with everything. And the Russians simply pulled out. And they pulled out, they secured the vast majority of their men, the vast majority of their equipment, and as they retreated, they inflicted with their artillery and air power terrifying losses. It is credibly estimated that the, um, that the uh, Kharkov offensive cost the lives, cost the lives, not casualties, lives of at least 6,000 uh, Zelensky regime forces. And the Russians suffered, suffered less than 100. I mean, it was that lopsided. And so in the West, they are talking about, you know, they're going that the Zelensky regime forces are going to break through to Kherson and they're going to go on the road to Crimea. This is nonsensical. They point in the West, in the Western media, the, 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 the prostitute media of the West. They claim that the Russians are evacuated civilians because they believe that they're going to lose Kherson. That's not the reason. The reason they are evacuating civilians is that they know that the Zelensky regime forces are going to fire indiscriminately into the city of Kherson using those famous HIMARS missiles to inflict damage on the civilian population as they have been doing for the last eight years in the city of Donetsk. And so all of this uh, attack on the city of Kherson, it would it'll probably destroy the city. And so that's why they removed all the civilians, because quite frankly, as an army, it's just easier not to have civilians around so you can go ahead and with your operations. And as I said, if the Russians feel that these advances are, are gaining ground, 
they will simply pull back because you have to understand the key issue. The Ukrainians have run out of men and they are rapidly running out of weaponry. Why do you think they are going to the West begging for all kinds of weapons, whatever weapons they can get? Because they have simply run out because, of course, those weapons have been destroyed. The original army has been destroyed. The only people who are fighting are territorial defense forces and also a lot of NATO contractors. Because all of these foreign weapon systems that are being operated in, in uh, Ukraine, well, it takes months to train for these weapons. And so it's impossible to get Ukraine uh, soldiers to train on them as a practical matter in terms of time. And so the people operating this equipment have been NATO contractors. Um, probably they were NATO officers for the British, the French, the Greek, the American army last week. And then they just, you know, quote unquote, resigned and signed the paper. And now they're private military contractors and they're sent to uh, Ukraine to operate these HIMARS systems, the M777s and whatnot. And so um, that's what you have fighting there. And these men are going to be decimated. It's, it's, it's going to be a slaughter. And even if they gain ground, which is a doubtful thing, but even if they do, you know, swarming, sort of like zombies in one of those apocalyptic movies, well, they will eventually exhaust themselves. They will run out of men. And then the Russians will simply bend back and move forward. In fact, Lyman, which was the town that uh, the Ukrainian armed forces captured uh, two, three weeks ago, the Russians now are staging offensives on that town to recapture it. And they're fresh, whereas the Zelensky regime forces that are currently defending Lyman, they're exhausted. And so th this is the war that's being fought. And the people in the West, uh, the vast majority of civilians, not people like you and I who are neck deep in the information warfare. Well, the people in the West do not seem to realize that all of their woes are not because of Russia. It's because of the Western leadership classes that bet it all on the Zelensky regime and defeating Russia. And they bet wrong. And they did all these sanctions that have backfired on them horribly. And that's why the people in Britain are going to go cold, dark, and hungry this winter. And uh, I know that you're in, in the UK, and, and, and sincerely, I, I hope that things work out for you personally, George, because you know how much I appreciate you. But I'm telling you, it's going to be an ugly winter for the people of Europe, and they only have their own leadership to blame. Their, your leadership, the European leadership, is going to blame Putin, but it wasn't Putin that didn't want to negotiate. It wasn't Putin that cut off the supply of gas. It was the West, the Americans, who decided not to negotiate, that they were only going to accept total victory and regime change in Russia. It was the West, the EU, the British government of Boris Johnson and now Liz Truss, and the Biden administration who all insisted on these draconian sanctions that only hurt the European people. And on top of that, as a final note, sort of like a cherry on the Sunday. You have the fact that the Americans blew up the Nord Stream pipeline in a grotesque act of terrorism, and they have the gall to try to blame it on the Russians. When we all know, everyone knows that the Americans did it, likely with the assistance of the United Kingdom and perhaps Poland, and it is going to, um, it is going to push the European economy off a cliff. In fact, it already has. I mean, the European economy is already collapsing. It's already gone off the cliff. Now we're just waiting for the final splat when it hits the bottom, okay? 
And we're seeing the deindustrialization of Germany. We are seeing the deindustrialization of the United Kingdom. And all the subsidies, free money that the governments of Europe give its citizens to buy gas, to buy heating oil, to buy gasoline and whatnot, it's not going to matter because at the end of the day, it's not an issue of not having the money. It's that there's no supply. There's no supply of gas. They had cheap energy from Russia for years, decades, in fact. And because of the sanctions, they literally cut off their nose to spite their face. And no amount of money is going to cure the fact that there is simply not enough energy to go around in Europe this winter. So to your listeners, I would, if you're in Europe, I would tell you that you have to stock up on firewood, heating oil, whatever it is that you use, because it's going to be a very ugly winter. First of all, it seems unlikely to me uh, that the Russians will allow themselves to be defeated in Kherson. After all, as you say, it was so vital for the dam. It was the first place they gave out the Russian passports. Their reinforcements are arriving, uh, yeah. presumably from the, uh, the mobilization that they have done. And although yeah. the numbers you uh, gave us earlier are big, and of course they're very, very serious, particularly the casualty numbers. But, yes. you know, if they've got 30,000 soldiers there, well, if Russia can't field 40 or 50,000 soldiers to hold on to Kherson, questions would have to be asked about them. So my instinct tells me that that Russia will turn Kherson into a Stalingrad. Well, what happens in modern warfare, what we're seeing is that, see, there, there comes a tipping point moment where, and in so far as an offensive is concerned, there are so many th uh, soldiers being thrown at you that sometimes it's just inevitable that you have to pull back. And it's not that you're weaker or that you're, quote, unquote, losing. It's just a smarter thing. Uh, for various specific operational reasons and tactical reasons, you sometimes want to prevent any small salient of your own men being captured, uh, cut off from the from the main grouping. So it's it's reasonable and rational to pull back, and 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 basically it's the the Muhammad Ali rope a dope strategy, of just uh, you know leaning back on the ropes and letting the other guy tire himself out until he's absolutely exhausted, and then you just uh, wake up and knock him out. And so the, this is a rope-a-dope strategy that the Russians are, are carrying out. I, I'm, I'm thinking that uh, viewers our age, you know, I'm, I'm in my early 50s, we all remember Muhammad Ali fighting against George Foreman. And that rope-a-dope strategy where it's basically uh, you're fighting but defending and you're letting the other guy tire himself out. Yeah, that, that's what the Russians are doing. Now, the other thing that's going on is that the partial, partial mobilization, you have to understand that when they called up 300,000 troops, and I personally believe it was probably higher because of anecdotal evidence and just, just the general movement in society in Russia, it's probably a lot more. I'm guessing it's closer to 500,000. The actual number has never been actually released by the, um, by the authorization that the Russians signed insofar as this is concerned. That, that part is classified. So anyway, the, the point is, these uh, people who were called up uh, in mobilization, they are not taking those civilians, giving them a week's training and sending them to the front in Ukraine. No, no, no. They take those men. They gave them a, a week or two of refresher training because all these the, the, the men mobilized are former soldiers. They were in the army and they are sending them to 
other units within Russia, far from the combat, to relieve combat troops there. And those combat troops who are already in place, already up to snuff insofar as training and equipment is concerned, those are the ones who are being sent to the Ukrainian front. And already it's credibly estimated that about um, between 60 and 80,000 men are in the region of Kherson, Russia's, from this mobilization. So they've already made a massive move already. Okay, And so uh, you, you have to understand that uh, um, in modern warfare, you can, in, in any kind of industrial warfare, really, it's perfectly fine to give up territory because as Clausewitz t- teaches us, uh, you don't fight terrain, you fight armies. What terrain you capture doesn't matter. What matters is that if you destroy the opposing army. And that's what the Russians have been doing very systematically from the very get-go of this conflict, especially after the breakdown of negotiations in March, in March, early April. You see, the Russians have deliberately been aiming to degrade the fighting force of the Zelensky regime. It is credibly estimated by Colonel Douglas McGregor, who has been keeping a very close eye and somebody who would highly recommend that you follow. He's the only dissident American uh, uh, officer who is saying what is more or less happening here in Ukraine. And he credibly estimates that about 100,000 Ukraine soldiers are dead. And uh, likely that same number, if not more, of wounded, incapacitated. So the original army is gone. And so, you know, this is, I believe, and other people seem to agree with me, that this is basically the Kiev regime's last stand. This is like the, um, the Battle of the Bulge in World War II where during the winter and into early Jan- into January of 1945, the, uh, uh, the Germans threw everything they had at the Allies on the West, and they exhausted themselves. And after that, they had no more army left, no more gas in the tank. And it was only three, four months later that the Allies were in Berlin. And it, it seems to me that this Battle of Kherson is that final bulge in this war, And frankly, they are throwing away the last of what they've got. And the worst part, the thing that that really drives me crazy, that that I find is just immoral and despicable, and I'm sorry for using such language, but it's the truth. It's immoral and despicable that they are throwing away the lives of these men just to score a political victory so that it helps Joe Biden and the Democratic establishment get a few more votes in the midterm election. It's all politics. It's not because they think that they can actually win, because they know that they can't. It's over. It's been over for weeks now. And all of these men who are dying for nothing, it's that. They are dying for nothing. Gonzalo, they're not even dying for votes for Joe Biden, because all of the signs are that Biden, the Democrats, are going to get the mother of all beatings. Uh, in the midterm elections in November. There was some hope a few weeks ago amongst Democrats that they could limit the losses. But it now looks, according to the betting, the betting markets, the polling, uh, and the individual statewide polling, all indicate uh, a wipeout of biblical proportions. So these men's lives are being sacrificed for a political purpose, which isn't even working for Biden. How about that then? 
Well, George, you see, you are a, 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 a much more idealistic man than I am because me, the cynic, uh, I think of myself as pragmatic, but maybe what I'm about to say is deeply cynical. I think that the Biden administration is going to outright try to steal this election. I think that there's going to be gross uh, electoral violations in this uh, coming election, and they will try to sweep it under the rug as they did in 2018, as they did in 2020. And I, um, I am frankly, I am not confident that it will be a straight election. And I would suspect that there's going to be such shenanigans that it will throw the outcome into, in, into serious political turmoil. I cannot believe that I'm saying this. I, I have never seen any kind of lawlessness as we are seeing now with the Biden administration. So I couldn't put it past them. I mean, something that if you told me this five, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have believed it. Now I do believe it because of the mm-hmm. actions of the Biden regime and how the Biden regime has uh, politicized the FBI and other security agencies in the United States to politically persecute dissident voices today or, or yesterday, was it rather a uh, writer? Um, I don't have his name offhand, but he was a writer writing about the evacuation of Afghanistan and the whole withdrawal of last year. He was visited by the FBI. Uh, he abruptly resigned from his position and he's disappeared. This is the kind of thing that we used to see in, in, in you know, totalitarian states. And we're seeing it in the United States, in the United States of America with the Constitution, First Amendment, all that stuff. And we are seeing open and grotesque political persecution of the government against the people. And we are seeing, seeing similar things going on across Europe. We are seeing huge protests across Europe by the people with just grievances. And they are being maligned. They are being repressed. The, the, the fact of these protests is being censored. You know, the West is dead in all of the, the virtues and, well, and, and uh, all of the, the, the principles have uh, been thrown away. Even worse, Gonzalo, even worse than being repressed, they're being completely ignored as if their demonstrations, their protests didn't even happen. Orwell, thou should be with us at this hour. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The mother of all talk shows midweek came to you thanks to my good friend Ravi and Regenerative Living. They are a remarkable outfit. Check them out, their website, 220km.com, 220km.com. They are dedicating their resources to providing us with the most unique and nutrient-rich ingredients and cosmetics that we have ever used, nature's ingredients 
simplified. They really are as green and wholesome as they sound. And part of their profits go towards regenerating native ecosystems to where they once were before we started to control and destroy them. I say ingredients and cosmetics because although the cosmetics are responsible for my shining visage looking at you right now, they're actually about to bring out foods and that's why I mention uh, ingredients. And they're with us for at least the next two months and I'm deeply grateful to you Ravi for that. Check them out on their website, uh, 220KM. The poll results are uh, remarkable, I think. Uh, they are uh, overwhelmingly of the view that the Ukraine war will not be over by Christmas. I have a feeling that I'm right and you who are voting on this poll are wrong. The one thing that is absolutely certain is that the skids are under the British government. As it still struts around the international stage, issuing threats and demarche and ultimata, inside their own parliament, they are literally fighting each other and insulting Jacob Rees-Mogg, lesse majesty. But we have the prince of political commentators with us now, he is the one and only Peter Oborn, a man of, I think he'll forgive me if I describe him as of conservative bearing, but a man very much at odds with the recent conservative government. He joins me now after an absence of some months. Peter Oborn, thank you for being with us on what has turned out to be a rather auspicious evening. Give me your summary of where stands now the British Conservative government. Well, you followed just as much as I have, George, the events of the last few hours. And what we've seen is uh, really the collapse of an already collapsing administration. Uh, we've seen the, re well, let's just go through it. So we've had the resignation of the Home Secretary, which seems a minor matter we've had um, in comparison to something, you know, shoving and pushing and intim alleged intimidation in the voting lobbies involving the Conservative Party. We've apparently had, although reports contradict this, the resignation of the chief whip. We've, um, um, and, and, I, and we have a prime minister who can't cope. I mean, it's, uh, it is worth asking, you know, the Conservative Party has been, uh, you know, the, the party which has governed Britain more than any other, the most successful party in many ways in the Western world for the last 200 years, uh, the party of Winston Churchill, of Margaret Thatcher, Benjamin Disraeli before then, and I'm wondering whether this is it. Yes, I wonder about that, because it's really two parties in one, I mean, both the major parties uh, have historically been two parties, at least two, uh, inside one big tent. That is a product of our first-past-the-post electoral system. But perhaps uh, there is a last straw which breaks the camel's back. 
and looking at right-wing Twitter and knowing people uh, to the right of you uh, in the conservative ranks as I do, I'm wondering if this is a breaking point, Peter. Well, if there was an election tomorrow morning, and I don't think we can rule out the possibility now there'll be a general election because the Conservative Party is consumed by such bitter hatred. Um, the Conservatives might win one, one seat in a parliament of 650, perhaps not even one seat. So that's the situation as we stand, according to the polls before the debacle today, is that the Conservative Party uh, when, when it, it would not get returns at all. Maybe one, maybe Rishi Sunak, who has, I think, the safest seat in the country, maybe he would, Richmond. But it's, I don't think that even he would get back. At least that would make him the leader. But would solve a lot of problems. Because, of course, they, <laughs> I, I assume what is happening now, George, um, you know better than me, an experienced parliamentarian that you are, uh, but they... They must have decided and be telling Liz Trust now that you must go. But the difficulty is, the reason she's staying there is what replaces her? What do they do? Uh, what if she says, no, I'm not going to go? And how do they dismantle her, force her eyes? And then how do they uh, arrange a bloodless, a bloodless coup, a succession where they, can, they don't fight over who gets the next job? Well, uh, of course, there are uh, many uh, barriers to forcing her out on paper. But as the uh, famous uh, Liverpool manager, uh, Bill Shankly, said, on paper, we should beat them. But football's not played on paper. It's played on grass. And uh, politics is played on the grass of uh, the, the turf of the House of Commons. So even if the rules say that Liz Truss cannot be no confidence uh, for 12 months, water always finds a way to flow downhill and will do uh, if the uh, political weather really has profoundly changed as you and I both think it has. Uh, so it wouldn't be difficult to force her out the men in grey suits, women in grey suits, show up and say, you literally have no support left, Liz. Go now, uh, before we have to organise uh, uh, empty benches behind you in Parliament, before we have to table a no-confidence motion in the House itself against you. There are many ways that they could force her out. But the bloodless coronation, well... That is the problem, isn't it? I dare say the MPs could do it because the MPs never wanted Liz Truss in the first place. They wanted Rishi Sunak. Uh, the problem is the members in the country do not want Rishi Sunak. The members in the country think we should be ruling India, not that an Indian should be ruling us. The members in the country want Boris Johnson, not Rishi Sunak. That's why I say we may be close to a breaking point, Peter. That's right. I think that, and by the way, remember the MPs themselves, they're not all um, the uh, kind of Rishi Sunak supporters. There's, you looked, looked at the way that uh, Suela Vrahman, who is used her brief time as Home Secretary to wage, you know, to wage war on the liberty and freedom and 
uh, uh, pursue uh, an authoritarian, in my view, bigoted uh, agenda. She's not going to want to roll in behind uh, Rishi Sunak or Jeremy Hunt, whoever it may be. Um, and there's plenty like her. The, um, I think what happened is that the far right captured quite a lot of the Conservative Party. And so it's now likely to split between the kind of uh, the libertarian financialized wing of the party, which generated that budget, uh, which gave, uh, enfranchised the super rich. Um, and then the more conservative, traditionally conservative wing of the party. It may be splitting as we, as we speak, or maybe they're going to try and come together to save their skins. It's um, my view. I, I don't know if you agree with me. Is that we do need a general election? They they they, they don't have any credibility. These people have done the most terrible damage to our country, uh, and they aren't fit. I mean, really, they couldn't run. I mean, as you, as I know, because I love pubs, I go to the pub. Pubs, you know, you, you, you require a lot of skill and attention and a human empathy to run a decent pub. These people couldn't run a, a local pub, let alone this country. Well, that's true, of course, on both sides of the house. And herein lies the trouble with a general election. Uh, of course, I support a general election. I think this government has lost its mandate. Uh, it has thrown it away, as a matter of fact. I mean, Boris Johnson, I know you don't like him. Uh, Boris Johnson returned a landslide victory for the Conservatives uh, not that long ago. Uh, but it's all been thrown away. It's all been wasted. And it now has effectively no authority to govern. As you say, it can't even govern its own affairs inside its own party. Uh, couldn't, definitely couldn't run a convivial public house uh, and cannot run an effective government. My problem is uh, that uh, I don't believe that Keir Starmer and his Labour front bench is any better and that Britain faces a tweedledee, tweedledum choice. Uh, and so I think we're in a bleak uh, place, Peter. Not since 1940, 41, when we were existentially challenged, uh, have we been in a worse place than this? Uh, but then we had men of the caliber of Mr. Churchill and Mr. Attlee and Mr. Bevin uh, and, and so on. We, we simply don't have such people uh, on the political front line now. I understand what you're saying, and I share... Many of your reservations about Mr. Starmer, you will have seen the Labour Files documentary, which I appeared in, which made me feel that I would be uncomfortable with Mr. Starmer, the way he's treated honourable Labour activists. Uh, and I've said my say on that. But we are doing, and we do face a, um, it is not a, a war in, in 1940, but I do believe we're facing the greatest social, economic, political, constitutional crisis of, our, of your lifetime and mine. And yeah. uh, you really to ask Liz Truss or whoever might succeed her to do that job is wrong. And I, although Mr. Starmer, I, I have my reservations, which I've just outlined, I do think that him and the Labour front bench 
uh, are not responsible for the complete and terrible shambles which we've we're now going through and the problem fundamentally is economic at the moment and i would trust that i wouldn't trust miss truss or uh you know quasi quatting or whoever with with the mortgage you know they're, they're going to drive it up if you're, you're a business person you you feel that they're likely to um, send you bankrupt and i therefore i would prefer speaking as a conservative to have uh, Labour and uh, Keir Starmer in, in charge of things at the moment, very much so. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, the hatreds. I'd like to drill down, if I can, with you, uh, what these hatreds are about. Is this all about Brexit? Is it uh, unreconciled uh, differences over the European Union? I, I think if you look at what happened at Brexit, and I think both you and I voted for Brexit, George, and both of us have got to ask a deep question about ourselves, whether we, were, we, we put this country in a disastrous direction, perfectly honourably, because we believed what we were doing, but uh, fatally for Britain. Now, there have been three uh, iterations, really, of Brexit. First of all, we had Theresa May, who wanted to strike a deal with Europe, Europe have a pragmatic uh, Brexit. Um, and that was destroyed by Johnson, who you have a higher opinion of uh, than me. Um, Johnson tried to have a, actually have the nearest thing which you might have liked, I can see that, uh, a Brexit for the kind of workers of Northern England, uh, uh, levelling up Brexit. Uh, and although he never really showed how he could do it, he was brought down by the fact that he was a pathological liar and it, the way he conducted himself as prime minister was wholly improper and unacceptable. So he went because he lied. Um, and then we got the third iteration of Brexit, which has been libertarian Brexit, the Brexit of the hedge fund managers, of May, the Brexit of Mayfair, the Brexit, uh, and of course that went calamitously wrong straight away. And we're now, we've had three attempts at Brexit and I have to say to you, as, and I respect your position, I, I can see it was an honourable one, and I'm mine, but were we very naive, and do, do we now have to think? I, I suggest to you that that Brexit decision has led to the national humiliation. Let's not, let's not be, let's be honest about it. Today's national humiliation. But Britain is now tonight, tonight the laughingstock of the world. We, we, every vestige of dignity or of ability to say this is how well, this is how you should do things has gone. Uh, and do we have to, you and I, to say to each other, we got it wrong? Well, I think you're half right. Uh, but the half that you're wrong is that the European Union is in an even worse state than we are. Uh, its politicians uh, borrow addressing the European Parliament yes. this week, described Europe point. as a garden and the rest of the world as a jungle, the heart of darkness. Uh, they are embroiled in hyper-war, economic war against Russia, which has beggared their own people. The European Union is a malfunctioning catastrophe. So to say we should have stayed in it 
in order to avoid our national humiliation seems to me to make no sense, Peter. As always, one of the reasons I regard you so highly, George, is that you refer to things which the, the national press, the mainstream press, don't mention. So this outrageous series of statements by the most senior diplomat in the European Union, which is basically racist and colonialist, uh, which has been ignored, have you seen, in the mainstream British press? Um, and it's deeply troubling. I accept that uh, about the European Union. I, I don't accept. Uh, if you're talking about Ukraine, you have to understand. You have to. You would have to accept that Britain is uh, uh, one with the rest of Europe over Ukraine. That is not a, a that is not a Brexit issue, therefore. No, it isn't. But the European Union is now electing the likes of uh, the new Italian uh, Premier, uh, the uh, countries of Hungary and Poland and Croatia and Slovakia are, uh, are crying out against Brussels and its uh, enforcement actions uh, against them on issues like immigration or other social policy issues, woke issues, greenery issues and so on, the fissures inside the remaining members of the European Union are very profound and their political leaders are no better than ours. They're just as bad as ours, I should say. I, I, I wonder about that. If you look at the, as I say, the fundamental crisis at the moment is an economic crisis. You are not seeing that level of economic mismanagement, uh, nothing like it in Europe, uh, as you are in this country, which has simply under the conservative, the, the, the governance of Liz Truss taken and the conservatives taken leave of its senses. And, and what tells you that is the is bond yields and uh, and the strength of the currency that something has gone nightmarishly wrong in this country. Now, you are right. There, Of course, there are very serious problems in Europe. You could have added, of course, the naked Islamophobia of Macron in France, which uh, has been very troubling and dishonoured the French nation. But I, 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 still would, uh, I, I still would say to you that you've got, when you've got to trace this national calamity, which the, the, the scenes of total shame and chaos in, in the House of Commons today and what's preceded it and what is going to come, because we're, we're going through something, it's not over yet, it's going to get worse. You, no. Should you not trace it to that fateful decision in, in June 2016? I, I absolutely don't. Uh, I don't resile from my stand on Brexit and for uh, self-government, uh, which is my principal reason for having yes, supported I uh, Brexit. Yeah. I'm a Benite. I was a Benite before and I'm a Benite now. I believe that, uh, that if you cannot remove the people that govern you, then you are not living in a democracy. Uh, we can now remove this government that governs us. Uh, we could not uh, remove Mr. Borrell. If we'd remained in the European Union, Mr. Borrell would have been speaking for us in the colonial, Kipling-esque, 
uh, a bit farcical, Peter, because the real colonialists uh, in the uh, later period of colonialism didn't really regard Spaniards as uh, quite like us, a bit dusky, uh, a bit uh, jungly themselves. It is one of the great ironies that a Spanish socialist could be speaking in the words and the terms that would have made Kipling blush. It was rank, heart of darkness, Joseph Conrad, Orientalism, colonialism, racism, and he would have been speaking for us if we had still been in the European Union. Well, unfortunately, you will agree that if you look at members of our of the Liz Truss's front bench, we have our own politicians saying exactly the same thing. And it does make you reflect that maybe the reason why it hasn't become a story, apart from an, your conversation with mine now, it hasn't become at all a story in the mainstream British press, is because they agree with this racist diplomat who Europe uh, and the most senior diplomat in Europe, they, they, they're not offended by the terrible things he said. And of course, you're right, you talk about the irony of France, but ne let's remember that there was a Spanish, sorry, you talk about the irony of Spain, but let's reflect that there was, a, you know, a Spanish empire and that where did Franco turn up from in 1936? He hops over the Mediterranean from Morocco, from the, the Spanish Empire in Morocco. So, and, the, and if you go back deeper to then, you can think of the terrible things which the Spaniards did to the to the you know the people of South America. And so there is a, 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 a there is a appalling legacy of imperialism and colonialism. And I think probably sure. we'd be safe to call it genocide sure. when you get back into the Spanish past. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, 100 million people were wiped out in the Americas after Columbus discovered it. Uh, 100 million from Chile to Canada uh, lost their lives. Uh, a cultural genocide and an actual uh, genocide carried out by uh, Spanish, uh, French and, of course, British uh, settler colonialism. Uh, without a doubt, Peter, I could talk to you all night, but we better let someone else have a chance. Thanks very much for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. God bless you. Peter Oborn, let me know what you think. This remarkable evening has gotten more remarkable. The chief whip and deputy chief whip of the government have unresigned. They have been, quote, persuaded to stay. <laughs> now, back to the phone lines. Anthony in Dorset on Ben Wallace. What's happened to Ben Wallace? Has he resigned? Go ahead, Anthony. Uh, <laughs> possibly by now, George. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm sure you've noticed in the mainstream media the last couple of weeks, there's been endless speculation that Russia may be about to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Now, obviously, there's, it's speculation. There's never any evidence or route to that. But anyway, speculation. So just put that thought aside for a moment. Now, this week, I believe he's still in Washington. Ben Wallace went for a sudden meeting uh, with his counterpart, um, which was described by one of his juniors as uh, conversations they were having would be beyond belief. 
Now, given that the West has already given endless amounts of money and weapons, it's put sanctions, it's blown up pipelines, excluded Russia from the SWIFT system, etc., etc. What do they mean or what could they mean by conversations concerning Ukraine which are beyond belief? And in that, I come back to my earlier comment on this speculation that's been going on. Now, are they going to make, when I say they are we, the West, going to make that speculation into a reality? And my question to you, George, and you're better at analysing these things than anybody else, how far do you think the West will go? Are they going to make that speculation into a reality? I don't think they'll go as far as you are fearing, Anthony. Uh, I do fear, George. I do fear. One has to imagine. Mm. Yeah, uh, uh, one has to imagine uh, that in the military, at least, hopefully in the deep state more widely, but in the military, at least, uh, there is no appetite to bring about the end of the world over the issue of Kopiansk being in Russia or in Ukraine. It is an absurdity if you put it that way, but that would be the way that if anyone was left alive to write the history, the history would be written. That the world ended over Isium, uh, over an alphabet soup of Ukrainian words and names that no one had ever heard of before eight months, nine months ago. No one can spell, uh, few can pronounce, and no one could point to on a map. Moreover, places which have been in four different countries in the last 100 years. The idea that humanity would be brought to its demise over such questions is, one would have thought, beyond any possibility of being allowed to happen, at least by the men in brass who would have to do the actual firing and pressing of the uh, triggers and buttons. Uh, so I don't think it will go as far as you fear. Um, you might ask yourself why this official was telling us that the conversations were beyond belief. Perhaps if they really were beyond belief, he wouldn't be telling us so. Perhaps this was crazy Dick Nixon talk. Uh, Nixon in his dotage in the last days of his presidency and his drunken ramblings with Kissinger was quite open about the fact that he used as a deliberate political ploy uh, the wide belief that Nixon was so crazy he could do anything. He might launch anything at anybody. Uh, so there may be a bit of that uh, going on. One thing I'm sure of, and no one's paying me to say this, I know that you know that, but just for the ill-intentioned, I'm not paid anything to take the view I'm about to express. I believe that Putin and Lavrov are far, far too statesmanlike to be contemplating launching nuclear weapons.
I don't believe they want to bring about the end of their country, their nation, which would, of course, be a necessary concomitant to the end of our country and our nation. I don't believe that they want to do that or that they will do that. The only circumstance in which Russia would use its nuclear weapons would be if NATO were literally invading Russia with the intention of breaking it up uh, in the way that they broke up Yugoslavia, which is the dream of the Ben Wallaces of this world. But as I don't believe that NATO could command the consensus in its ranks for such a world-ending series of events, I don't believe that these eventualities will occur. On the contrary, I'm optimistic. I believe that Russia will win sweeping military victories by conventional means over the next six weeks to ten weeks, and that therefore, by Christmas, the decision will have been made to negotiate an ending and the saving of what would then be left of a Western Ukrainian state. We'll see if I'm right. Anthony, thank you for your call and the way that you put it. Megan is in Winchester. Let's take her next. Go ahead, Megan. My question to you tonight is why the journalists in the mainstream media seems so content to ignore the outrage of Julian Assange's incarceration when it directly attacks the future of their own profession. Well, to, George? Uh, to use a word that was used by the Honourable Peter Oborn uh, not half an hour ago, uh, these journalists to whom you refer are prostitutes. They are whores. They have literally sold themselves, rented themselves at best, sold themselves at worst, and are echoing the prevailing orthodoxy shared by their proprietors, their owners, and the state, uh, the deep state, and the political state, both sides of the House of Commons. So. In short, they are not journalists in the way that you or I would understand that term and in the way that Julian Assange surely was a journalist. The great Irish journalist Claude Coburn said that the proper relationship of the journalist to the state is that of the dog to the lamppost. That's the job of a journalist, as Coburn said, Nothing is true until it has been officially denied. Our so-called journalists take the entirely opposite point of view. They are urinating, maturating on us on behalf of the state and their proprietors. And nothing is true if it has been officially denied. And anyone who insists on a contrary point of view, has to be slandered if not slain. And in the case of Julian, I fear, slain. He is in a grave 
and perilous state of ill health, and if he is sent to the Supermax Penitentiary in Boulder, Colorado, he will surely perish. And you say that what's happened to Julian is a threat to them? I'm sorry, Megan, it isn't a threat to them because they have no intention of reporting the truth in the way that Julian Assange may well have given his life for having done. Thanks for the call. Simon is in London on UK politics. Go ahead, Simon. I was just going to say, you were kicked out rather unfairly from the Labour Party because you rightly asked soldiers to refuse to fight. Correct me if I'm wrong. Now, some may criticise you for being unpatriotic. You are wrong, yeah. I, 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 I didn't... You know, let me stop you. I was okay. kicked out uh, for five reasons, one of which was uh, my call uh, on the British Armed Forces not to obey illegal orders. And of yeah, course, okay. it is a legal duty to refuse illegal orders and has been ever since Nuremberg. Go on, Simon. Sorry to interrupt you. That's absolutely fine. Some may criticise you for being unpatriotic, but it's absolutely it's, your opinion matches a lot of people, and indeed matches that of a lot of military veterans who've seen the horrors of war. Now, uh, the government, whether it be Labour or Tory or the Walking Democrats, let's face it, really don't care about the life of a soldier and view them as nothing more than cannon fodder. And this was clearly evident a few months ago when Liz Truss, I think I spoke to you about this previously on your show, she acted and fully, rather foolishly, I encouraged people who want to go to fight in Ukraine to go, even though it's totally illegal. And if this doesn't convince people just how stupid this lady is, uh, this week she fired Johnny Mercer, who's uh, done some work for the veterans in, in the military and so on. And uh, while she did it, she giggled and laughed while, she's, while she fired Johnny Mercer, who himself is a military veteran. He's seen military service, you know. Does this not show people just how arrogant this lady is? And uh, people of her ilk in the Conservative Party and indeed other parties such as Labour and the Walking Democrats actually are, you know? Well, uh, a very powerful uh, series of points there. Nobody could be more patriotic than me. I'm even uh, wearing a, a blue tie. Uh, I'm the leader of the Workers' Party of Britain, clue being in the name. Uh, we have no master other than the working class of Britain. We supported Brexit because we believe in Britain. We believe in the British. We love our uh, language. We love our culture. We even love our football, particularly Manchester United, but everywhere from Inverness, Caledonian Thistle to Plymouth, Argyle. We have an encyclopedic knowledge and love for them all. We are seeking to build a new Jerusalem here in this green and pleasant land. Not in Latin America or in Southeast Asia, but here in this green and pleasant land. And I promise you, as a former boy soldier myself, uh, no one could be more uh, considerate of the poor bloody infantry that are sent by these politicians to fight these unjust wars than me. And as a matter of fact, we have a very considerable number, certainly proportionately a considerable number, of ex-servicemen 
in our own Workers' Party. But thanks, Simon, for the opportunity to say that. Saad is in Virginia in the United States. Go ahead, Saad. I just wanted to mention a few points that uh, prior to the referendum, I was actually telling a couple of my friends about this idea that the Russia was probably going to annex few provinces, but it may be possible that they might hold on to it for 10, 15 years so that they can coerce Ukraine into not joining the NATO. Because if, if they have few of their provinces under Russian control, it might be unlikely that they will actually join the NATO. But on the other hand side, one more thing that I did want to point out is that earlier somebody was talking about the uh, you know, nuclear crisis. I was just going to say about that, even though it may be very unlikely, but if Russia does decide to put the nuclear weapons in Cuba, this is not going to be like the 1950s and 60s, because today with the hypersonic missile technology, nuclear cruise missiles that are three, four times the supersonic speed, and these capabilities, oh man, it's only in Florida, coast is only 250, 300 some miles away from Cuba. It will be within a matter of few minutes that it will be so imminent. So, but, uh, but again, that's another question. Well, uh, it, would be much, it, uh, it would be much faster than that, Sad. Cuba is 90 miles mm -hmm. from the United States and uh, the entire state of Florida could be incinerated not in minutes, uh, but barely uh, in seconds. Um, not only are these missiles uh, exponentially faster than the missiles that Khrushchev put in Cuba in 1960, the uh, firepower of the missiles is a thousand times greater than the uh, atomic bombs that the United States dropped on Japan twice. Uh, in Hiroshima and in Nagasaki. So uh, no one should imagine that if the nuclear weapons begin flying, that anyone will survive. As I pointed out uh, just on the Sunday show, one single missile with multiple warheads uh, would be in uh, Britain. Uh, I think the figure is eight minutes from firing. And those multiple warheads would incinerate all of Britain's major cities in an instant. Nothing would be left alive. And those not living in those cities would soon die in the nuclear winter and from the radiation that would uh, ensue. So anyone who wants to fight a nuclear war is literally clinically insane. And to want to do so, not because your own country was threatened, your own interests were threatened, but over Kupiansk and Izium, seriously, you'd have to be insane to want to do that. And if they are insane, they shouldn't be anywhere near uh, the nuclear weapons the triggers for which they carry around in uh, handbags and have to be uh, close by them uh, all the time. So thanks, uh, Saad, for that. I don't believe that that will happen. But if it happens, it's good night, Irene, for all of us.
and it's been nice knowing you all, uh, but none of us will know anyone ever again. We'll never know if our children might have grown up uh, into beautiful and uh, talented uh, people. I'll never know whether my son would ever have played for Celtic or Manchester United. I will know nothing and my son will be nothing. We will be radioactive dust. And you have to ask yourselves why we have a parliament in Britain, virtually every single member of which is gung-ho behind this Ukraine war. Not a single member of parliament, not one, not even Jeremy Corbyn, is talking to you in the way I am now about this question. So you have to ask yourself whether our politics is so shrunken, so emaciated, so starved, that we have effectively ceased to be a democracy. After all, you're not a democracy if there's only one song being sung. If no one can be found in the Parliament House to even raise questions, never mind chart a different way forward, whether we are living in a democracy at all. That's really the question that I have been trying to ask. Let's go to the US and talk with Jason. Go ahead, Jason. Like concerning your, you had like a small speech concerning nuclear war and like the fact that everything would be destroyed. So I, I went on Omegle recently and I was on this tab called like a Trump tab just to see like who's online. And there's, yeah. there's like a lot of fundamentally like genuinely racist people. Like I've never experienced genuine actual racism to a point where someone would be like, hey, I want to literally exterminate the Jews. Literally like so content and downright just wanting to raise his kids on the same ideology and he's like proud of it. I've never experienced that in my life. So I told him, I was like, what's the point of doing that if you know that everything is finite and temporary and nuclear war is on the brink and you know everything will just be destructed why not be a man of faith be a man of honor be a man of dignity take care of your family like be respected you know be a good person and uh i don't know he was just like so my children can survive so my lineage can survive so my my ancestors and the future human beings who will look like me will have the same ideology and i will live on in this world and i'm like like, I don't know. I really don't have an explanation for it concerning what you were talking about. Well, uh, of course there are uh, such people, and one of them was on his feet as the European Union's chief diplomat, I'm not joking, uh, this very week when he described the people outside Europe as living in a jungle, whilst we live in a garden. He described the people living outside Europe as being savages in the heart of darkness. I'm not making this up. That's what he said. And he's a Spaniard. The Germans, the British, the Americans, 
They look down their nose at Spaniards. They might think they are outside the garden. But the truth is, Europe is not a garden. Europe is a jungle. Have you seen the streets of Europe of late? Did you see the thousands of French cops with their clubs out, smashing down peaceful protesters in Paris and elsewhere in France? Just yesterday, people that were out protesting against the cost of living, against the war, were savagely beaten by the French police. We do it differently here. We just pretend the demonstration never happened. Don't report it, and therefore only those that were on it ever know what the message of the protest and the demonstration was. But if we needed to, I feel sure we would club them down exactly as the French did. Have you seen the poverty in this garden of which Borrell speaks? Have you seen the poor and hungry children in this garden? Have you seen the fearful old age pensioners facing a long and bitter winter without the means of keeping themselves warm? Have you seen the environmental degradation in this garden? And of course, neither is outside of Europe a jungle. Have you seen the development in China? Have you seen the beauty of a re-emerging Latin America? Have you seen the, the joie de vivre of the people of the Latin American countries as they find their way towards their own independent path? of development. Have you seen Africa? Far from being the heart of darkness, it's the next place where the sun is going to rise. Africa is where the greatest treasures on the earth are to be found. Africa will be the great continent of tomorrow and of the years and decades are to come. The sun is rising not in Europe, Mr. Borrell. It is Europe that is the basket case with falling population, with sexual ambiguity, with record divorce rates, broken families, fatherless families, and all the other social ills that we are afflicted by. We have leaders that can't even tell you what a woman is. That's how bad things are in our garden, Mr. Borrell. Well, that's all I've got time for. I'll need to come back on Sunday at 7 p.m. UK time the mother of all talk shows. See you Sunday. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.